0: Welcome, everybody. Welcome. It's good to have everybody with us. Our message tonight is going to be a little different from messages that we typically do, different than what I had planned. Tonight's message is for anyone who considers themselves to be an analytical thinker, scientific, logical, reasonable. Um, uh, Anyone who considers themselves to be Spiritual, but not necessarily religious, and anyone who wants to just be a better person. Um, I wanted to take this week as an opportunity to put some thoughts down because the older I get, the more people around me are dying, and not just in a far off kind of sense, but kind of suddenly. And so it, it, it makes me realize that all of us are dying. Even the young people I know are dying. And so I wanted to do a message of comfort for the dying man. And I'm, I'm using the traditional English construct of man as the masculine. Um, in English grammar, the masculine includes the feminine. And so I'm going to use that just for simplicity. I don't want to offend anyone. This message is for everyone. Um, Everyone is dying, all of us. And I'm certain that despite all of my... Well, I've I've tried to talk with people about dying and life and death and God and heaven and hell and all of that. I've tried to be a witness to people, as they call it. But I'm not always very good at it day to day. And so I wanted to sit down and actually put something together that might be better than if you just caught me on any given day. Um, Because despite my pride and my arrogance and my meanness and my general disagreeability, (laughs) I believe that I have found the way to heaven and to eternal life. And I'd like everyone else to know the way. So everyone I know can have eternal life and go to heaven. Um, And I wouldn't be a decent human being if I thought that and I believed I had found the way and then I didn't try to tell you about it. And so that's what this is about. So I just ask you to hear me out. Because if I were dying, I would hear you out. And hopefully you'd tell me. You know, my Uncle Tom... He told me just before he died, he said, Doug, it's not so much Jesus I have a problem with. It's all of his followers. I think he was quoting Gandhi. Anyway, I told him, you know, Uncle Tom, I have similar problems. And, and, and I reminded him that uh, as far as I know, Jesus Christ was the only religious leader who ever warned people in writing about his own followers. Jesus said, Take heed that you're not deceived, for many shall come in my name. Go not after them. He also said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. So I told Uncle Tom that he shouldn't look to me as someone to follow. Or or don't look to anyone who tells him about Jesus or God or heaven and hell, right and wrong. Don't look to any of those men to follow. I just asked that he would look into what Jesus said about himself and make a judgment based on that. And he told me a lot of people had told him about a lot of different gods and a lot of different things. And a lot of different things about Jesus too. And he just figured there was something good for everyone and whatever God they followed. He was just never convinced about any of them. But he had about two weeks to live according to his doctor, and so he told me, I'm willing to hear you out. And so I told him, and I'll get to that. So let's start with some things we've heard about how to live our best life now, or something like that. Um, You've heard some of these, right? Be positive, follow your heart, just love everybody, just be a good person, right? These are all nice sounding platitudes. But none of us live up to them all the time. None of us live up to any of them all the time. Except maybe follow your heart sometimes. But even then, when our heart disagrees with our immediate appetites, or if it leads us into a great deal of hard work, we tend to not even be able to follow our heart for very long. And when you think about that, what is it that tells you you're not capable of always being positive or always loving or always trying to be a better person or always trying to follow your heart perfectly? What is it that tells you you're not capable of that? Well, it's that little voice you hear when you talk to yourself. It's called your conscience. Some have called it your inner man. And I'm assuming everyone here has heard their conscience, right? We all know what that is. You know you have a conscience, right? You know right from wrong, don't you? Have you ever been violated by someone who's doing you wrong? Do you know they were doing you wrong? Could you tell? Have you ever done anyone wrong? Did you know it? Even if you didn't get caught? Have you ever violated your own conscience? Well, before we get to that, where do you think your conscience came from? Um, and, And so, in fact, let's just talk about first things first. Where did everything come from? How did everything we see and hear and touch and smell and taste come to be? And where did all the things that we can't process by just our senses, where did they come from? Things like ideas and thoughts and desires. Speaking of love, where did love come from? and philosophy and mathematics and logic and reason. Well, let's start with logic. Logic isn't physical. It's like the number three. Um, Logic is a concept with no physical properties or mass, but logic is real by logic. You're able to define and explain and understand reality without logic. There would only be confusion and uncertainty. So anyone who denies logic is real is being foolish. Without logic, there can be no reason. And without reason, well, without reason, one cannot speak to the subject of reason. Without reason, one cannot speak at all. So to reject logic and reason is nonsense. And I know we're all reasonable people here. Now, as far as where everything came from, including logic and reason, logic and reason dictate that there was never nothing. There could never have been nothing, for if there ever were nothing, there would only be nothing, because from nothing comes nothing. And there is something, right? I think we all agree. There is something. Now, whether our perception of it is correct or not, we can debate that. But there certainly is something. So since something exists, something must have always existed. And since we're bringing up the topic and we're able to hear it, comprehend it, um, it's obvious that we're all self-aware, intelligent, personal, creative, loving people. And since we exist, it logically follows that some even more self-aware, intelligent, personal, creative, loving person must have always existed. Such an eternally existent person who created everything is the most reasonable assumption to account for our existence um, and the existence of everything else. Now, some people, they appeal to the self-organization of matter, and uh, the mystic presence of some mysterious consciousness as the reason everything exists. But I want, to explore the, I want to explore the option that Occam's razor would suggest we explore first. Occam's razor is a philosophic principle that recommends the answer constructed of the simplest and most direct set of elements should be investigated first. It's attributed to uh, William of Ockham, a 14th century English philosopher and theologian. Ockham said we should prefer the simpler answer to a question. Only after the simplest answer is eliminated should we search for the more complex. Well, my version of Ockham's razor asks, how do you fit a six-foot log in a four-foot box? Well, there are a number of ways. The simplest is to cut two feet off the log. So before we contemplate more difficult, mysterious possibilities like infinite uh, consciousness or self-organization of matter, let's take Occam's razor or Occam's saw, if you will, and let's cut to the chase. We'll either confirm or eliminate the simplest explanation for reality and for existence that an eternally existent person created us and everything else. Now, if we were traveling through space and we came across our solar system with its order and functionality, and especially all the amazing life on Earth, uh, one would be like the hiker in the woods who discovers a canteen full of water on the ground. It would be reasonable to assume that the canteen existed because someone made it. And it would logically follow that the canteen in the woods is there because someone left it there. To try to explain it any other way would be unreasonable. So it's the same with the earth and the people in it. Considering the existence of a self-aware, intelligent, personal, creative, loving being, apart from an even greater self-aware, intelligent, personal, creative, and loving creator, would be to discard Occam's razor and and just be unreasonable a reasonable person doesn't do that and like i said before i know that we are all reasonable people here and by person by the way i don't mean an eternally existent person is a human being what i mean is a self-aware intelligent personal creative loving being which would be a person because that's what we are we're all self-aware intelligent personal creative and loving right So let's think about that eternal person that may have created all this. That creator would most likely live somewhere in the creation. That would be the logical first assumption. So we could search the creation to discover where that being might dwell. And where would be the most logical place to look? That would be the earth. Right? Since an examination of all other places reveals nothing else that's living, at least nothing approaching the sophistication of the life and the people on earth. Um, So let's just see if the creator of all this might just be an eternal, self-aware, intelligent, personal, creative, loving being living on the earth. Is anyone aware of such a being living on the earth? The quick answer is no. Occam's razor is a principle, but it's not a law. The simplest, most direct answer should be pursued first, but it's not always correct. So we look around, we see the creator is not here. And so now we have to pursue more complex possibilities. We can now ask, where is he? Where where is the creator? Why is he not living on earth in the creation that's filled with all this life and other people? Well, maybe he lives somewhere else in the solar system or out in the galaxy or in space or somewhere beyond space. But but why isn't he here? If he made this, why why would he make it and then leave? That seems out of order. And, And so in saying that, I realize now that something's out of order. When I suggested earlier that we're all self-aware, intelligent, personal, creative, and loving, was there something else about human beings that you might've thought of when I said that? That we're all self-aware, intelligent, personal, creative, and loving? Perhaps you thought that in addition to being loving, we're also unloving, even hating. I mean, not always, and hopefully not not even very often, but sometimes, right? I know I am. I'll admit it. I mean, I try to be a good person, but nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? Have you ever heard that before? Nobody's perfect? Sure you have. Do you disagree? Or, Or a better question, did you disagree with that statement the very first time you heard it? And you did not, you did not disagree because the first time you heard the expression, nobody's perfect, it was used regarding either you or someone you loved who had fallen short or done wrong or failed. And so the first time you heard nobody's perfect, not only did you immediately agree, you immediately desired grace and forgiveness, either for yourself or for that loved one. And then the longer you lived, the truth of that statement, nobody's perfect, it was confirmed in every single person you ever met or had a relationship with. And you also realize that everyone needs a little grace. So back to the creator. We don't find the creator living on earth. And we know that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence has been searching the rest of the solar system and even deep space with radio telescopes. But the eternally existent Creator is not to be found dwelling out there or here on earth. Why? Well, as we search for the Creator, we will encounter a variety of stories about a variety of different Creators. And all the stories have one thing in common. The Creator, the higher power, the divine, the great Spirit, the eternal consciousness... It doesn't dwell on earth. And all of these stories, to one degree or another, assert that he's too good to live among all these imperfect people in this imperfect world that's imperfect, with its bad weather and earthquakes and floods and pestilence and wars. Those imperfect people have have caused an imperfect world, and so the Creator cannot dwell with them here on earth because the place is something of a disaster. I mean, at least at times. Not all the time, but at least at times. Sometimes it's a real disaster, especially with the crimes and the hatred and the wars, especially the wars. From the Babylonians to the Greeks to the indigenous pagans, those who worship nature and various spirits and gods, To all of them, the one thing they all have in common is a higher creator or a higher creation that human beings must attain to from our imperfect state. And let's just put it out there. Our state, at least many of us, is more than imperfect. That's putting it kindly. It's mean, prejudiced, bigoted, lying, deceitful, hateful, and even warlike. We lie, cheat, steal, we even kill one another. At least the bad people do. And the fact is that we're all bad in at least one of those ways. Maybe you've never murdered anyone, but have you lied? Have you cheated? Have you stolen? Have you ever been selfish or mean? Have you ever been angry without cause? Well, even with just your imperfections or mine, the higher power just can't dwell among all that. And now throw in the warmongers and the child abusers and the murderers. And whatever you call God or whatever you've heard called God or higher or spiritual or good or righteous simply cannot live among all that. And and by the way, if you think it's just dirt in your face and a long nap at the end, Check with your conscience. Do you really think the murderers and the child abusers are going to be allowed to get away with it forever? Do you really think that? You know you have a soul. And if you'll be honest with yourself, you know that if those criminals are not going to get away with what they've done, and you know that they're going to get what they deserve, then so are you. And maybe not as bad as them. But none of us are going to be allowed to just go to sleep forever or just disappear and go away. That just doesn't ring true. And even if you disagree and you you think you'll just disappear or you'll just stop existing. Well, just the possibility that you're wrong about that warrants hearing out. Alternative possibilities and considering. Well, you may have heard that the alternative to a long dirt nap or annihilation, you may have heard that the alternative is religion. And religions certainly have grown up throughout history purporting to show us how we might attain to that higher power or Mother Earth, or Great Spirit, or Father God, or or whatever it is we all seem wired to want to attain to. A reasonable person should realize that what must be true is that there is an eternal Creator, and He does not live on earth. And we all seem to want to attain to Him, or that, or it. all these religions indicate that everyone has a built-in desire to either want to find Him or be at peace with Him or pay Him off or make it up to Him somehow or find a way to be at harmony with Him and His creation, which everyone seems to feel innately guilty about ruining the creation. Everyone seems to feel somewhere in their conscience, that they bear some responsibility for messing up the earth or the environment or the yin and the yang or the feng shui. The earth is messed up and the creator is not living here because of us. It seems like we all innately know that somewhere buried back in our conscience. I mean, maybe not us, but at least like for people like Hitler, right? But even people not like Hitler are in therapy because everyone feels bad about something. And everyone seems to understand that to attain that higher power and be at peace with the creation and to find peace, we all need to be better people. We need to love more. We need to forgive more. We need to be less selfish. We all need to care more about other people. And when you consider this, you consider the reason the eternal creator is eternal. And perhaps it's the same reason he's not living with all these imperfect people here on earth. Because he is, in fact, what they are all either in church or at the bar or in therapy trying to be. He is righteous. And it follows that to exist eternally, one would have to be righteous. One would have to have never murdered anyone, certainly, or even lied or cheated or stolen or even been selfish or mean or angry without cause or prejudiced or bigoted or any of that. To be eternal, one would have to be righteous all the time. So, he would have to be a righteous, self aware, intelligent, personal, creative, and loving being. He would have to be what you might call perfect. But how would he know if he was perfect? Or who would ever hold him accountable for not being perfect or for making a mistake? Since he is above all natural laws, he couldn't be held accountable by nature. So, how would he be judged? I mean, for us, we know that reality judges all of our mistakes, even apart from any personal accusation or conviction. Uh, When we misjudge the location of the edge of a cliff, well, there's no need for anyone to accuse us or to offer any judgment. There's not even a judge. There's not even a trial. The judgment is rendered immediately apart from any other person or any other accusation. But for the Creator, that doesn't seem like it would hold. There would have to be another person, equal in status to Him, to hold Him to account. Had the eternally existent Creator ever been imperfect or inconsistent in any way, He would have to be judged by another person as such. And having been judged so, he would have ceased to possess the necessary righteousness to exist as an eternal being. He would have fallen, so to speak. And maybe he has. Maybe that's why nobody's perfect. Maybe the Creator became imperfect. But since we all exist, and everything still exists, it's safe to assume that he has not fallen. He still exists and has upheld His righteousness, even in the judgment of another person, co-equal with Him in eternally righteous existence. But that relationship is apart from the, the current topic at hand. We'll come back to it. But for now, where is the Creator? And why can't we attain to see Him and dwell with Him on earth? Or wherever He is. Well, coming back now to Occam's Razor, all the world's religions and philosophical systems and our own consciences point to our desire to attain to some perfect state of harmony and love with either the creator or the creation. So which religious tradition gives the simplest account for this? Well, I'm going to ask you to consider one. That the eternally existent Creator determined before the foundation of the world that He would have fellowship with people who would be holy and without blame before Him in love. The eternally existent Creator chose to create people who would be like Him and who would be able to be with Him where He dwells in perfect righteousness forever. He determined this and then He created In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now this matches the scientific evidence that the universe and our solar system and everything else appears to have had a beginning. And then God said, let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. Out of the dust of the ground, male and female, he created them and God blessed them. The Creator God made people similar to Him in an image or a form and similar in likeness or personality. Which corresponds, by the way, to the universal sociological observation that people prefer to be with people who are similar to them. God wanted people like Him to be around. So, being eternally powerful and creative, He created them. And By the way, after creating a universe... A heavenly host of angels to govern that universe, a solar system, and then a planet, which teeming with life for, for which, uh, on which they could dwell. And then we're told that God called the firmament that He had made heaven. And so at the beginning, God did dwell on the earth. In fact, He considered earth a part of heaven where He lived. And so one can logically assume that like the eternal creator, the universe and the solar system and earth were perfect at the beginning, just like Him. We're told, in fact, that the first people God created, we're told that they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So God walked and talked with the people He created on earth, and everything was very good at the beginning then there enters a character from that heavenly host that this character had been in eden in the garden of god he's called the anointed cherub and he was perfect from the day that he was created we're told but then we learn that this character exhibited behavior that unfortunately we're all familiar with especially in really bad people we're told that the pride of his heart deceived him, and that he said in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And we learn in the story that iniquity was found in him. We learn that his character then approached the woman from his position of trust as the anointed cherub, and he asked her, Has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman answered Him, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, lest you die. And then He said to her, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as God's. So he lied to the woman and he tricked her into violating the one rule God commanded her husband to observe. Eat freely anytime from every tree of the garden, but don't eat from this one tree. And so in his pride, he lied to the woman and he deceived her and she broke the rule. And then she gave the fruit to her husband. And he broke the rule. And so you might ask, why did God include such a rule? Well, since we can assume he's good and loving, we assume that it had to be for their good. So what good could come of asking the man he created to observe one rule? Well, it follows that if he wanted people to live with him eternally, they would have to attain to the perfect, continual state of righteousness that he had. But how could the man manifest such righteousness? Always perfect in every action, without error, only loving continuously. How could they prove they were righteous each day, day by day, forever? Well, how does someone prove they're good to you? And don't pretend you don't judge anyone, because that's nonsense. If someone lies to you, cheats you, or steals from you, even you, as kind as you are, you judge them. You judge them at the very least as imperfect, and you might say even more under your breath. And you'll judge them even more acutely, especially with your feet, as you move yourself away from them. That's a judgment too. And it's okay, because judging keeps us out of trouble most of the time. So a mechanism in order to attain to righteousness was necessary for the man. And God decided to make it as simple as possible. He inserted one arbitrary rule about not eating from one tree. And he introduced it right alongside another rule, if you you will, about eating freely from every other tree out of the hundreds of thousands of trees And he asked them to just trust him that following this rule would be good for them. So they could decide once to believe him. And then after that, they could judge him as to whether or not it was actually good. Is is everything all well after that? They could judge that. And then he could judge them in their belief. And after that, each would know the veracity of the other based on simple trust. All facilitated by this one simple decision about this one simple rule regarding one tree. And when you think about just having to follow one rule in life in order to attain righteousness, it's pretty good. I mean, it's as if God was setting the people He created up for success. Like, instead of a bunch of little rules that might come up daily, he gave the man only one rule that he could decide on once and then move on, never having to consider the rule again, but simply to trust God, and then he could live at liberty in heaven on earth, being perfectly righteous and living alongside the righteous Creator. So the rule about the tree... It proved God to be the ultimate humanitarian. They could all go on in perfect trust, living and eating from the thousands and then millions and then maybe later even billions of different trees that would eventually grow. And it would all be very good. And they would trust each other and never hide anything from each other and never lie to one another. In short, God put in place a functional mechanism by which they could love one another without any reservation. And I say without reservation because, I mean, all of us here, we've already admitted nobody's perfect, right? And all the adults in the room know that we've never loved each other perfectly and without reservation. Continuously, we haven't. We've loved our children without reservation, though, right? Right? <laughs> No, no, even that's not true. The fact is, we've never loved anyone perfectly, continually, not even our kids. Not continuously, perfectly, without reservation, even though we want to. (laughs) And, And even though we've always had an idea of what that should be and what that should look like, but we've never been able to sustain it in perpetuity with anyone, not even our own kids. So all the adults in the room who've listened to this message this long, who've agreed that logic and reason are real, and who've agreed that nobody's perfect, and who all have at least one favorite song about love, we now come to a point to contemplate what love is. And for that, I want to return to our story. People sometimes ask, why does the Bible teach that God tempted Adam and Eve with the tree in the garden? And they say it like an accusation, like He wanted them to be tempted and fall. But in fact, we can see that it was the perfect means of empowering them to manifest perfect love. And it could have all worked forever if that anointed cherub had not been filled with pride and lied to them and deceived them and tricked the woman Who misled her husband, and they took of the tree, and they eat, and they they did eat, and they broke the rule. And so God told the cherub, who is now no longer a trusted overseer, but an adversary, He told the cherub, You have sinned, and because you have done this, you are cursed. And in this, we see the genesis of a number of things we acknowledged earlier that there is something about all of us, something, nobody's perfect. And especially really mean evil people. There's something that makes some people do the most horrible things. They do bad things to people and they harm other people. Well, our story tells us that the root of all that is sin. And it's described quite simply as coming from pride and lies. And when we analyze the most evil people on earth right now, and the most evil men we've ever read about in all the history books, we see that there are two characteristics they all share. They are prideful and they lie. Now there may be a thousand psychiatric classifications of liars and egomaniacs, and there may be a book full of varying symptomatic behaviors used to put people in those classifications. But the simplest way to classify the most evil people is as it is told right here in our story they are proud liars and our story tells us that God calls this first prideful liar a sinner and then we're told that God tells the man now that he's broken the rule God says cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow Shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life? In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thy return unto the ground. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And that's a long way from eating freely from all the trees in the garden. But they were tricked by the devil. At least Eve was tricked. So why is God cursing Adam over the deceit of the devil? Why not leave Adam and Eve alone? and just punish the devil. But our understanding of the righteous requirement for eternal life answers that. Once the perfect trust was violated, God could not merely wink like a magician and make it all okay. Because God is real. God is not a magician. Reality is real. And the consequences of good and evil are real. And those consequences were part and parcel of the creation. And where did man come from? From the dust of the earth. And God God said the earth is cursed. Well, God didn't have to perform some special cursing upon the earth. He didn't have to zap the earth with cursing. He was merely pointing out to Adam the reality of existence after Adam's sin. It's just the way it was going to be. It was unavoidable. And yes, the first sin on its face to us does appear to be, I mean, it's not anywhere close to the sins of like Adolf Hitler or Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Jeffrey Dahmer. It's not like those guys. But that would follow considering the simplicity of that first rule. The item from which the first sin could spring was so innocuous as to be easily forgotten about. Don't eat from this one tree. And and had it not been for the deceit of the devil, I'm sure that it had been forgotten about. So it didn't take the crime of the century to break that perfect trust. Just the one infraction. And, And true love was now broken. And so the creation itself was broken. There was an environmental catastrophe. And the curse of death and a separation from God was the natural consequence. And and here we begin to understand why it is that the Creator, who we would have thought lived on the nicest place in the solar system, why He doesn't live here? It's because the place is cursed. Pride and lies and sin now means a corrupted environment and the death of everyone here. I mean, our story tells us that by one man, sin entered into the world, and by death, and and, and sin, and death by sin. I mean, we're told in the story that by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. it makes sense that the creator would separate himself from the people and the creation that were now cursed. In fact, it's not unreasonable to assume that God had no choice but to separate himself from it. The nature of reality does not permit God to dwell in such a cursed place, nor can cursed and sinful beings dwell with God. And not just the really evil people in politics and in the history books, But even the ones that you and I would think of as decent people, our neighbors, you know, they're not perfect, but I mean, nobody's perfect, but they're nice people. They're kind and they're caring people we know and love, even you and me, people like us, even we can't live with God because nobody's perfect. And it's not that he wants to send us to hell either. It's just that we can't live with him. And since we were made in His likeness, we're going to exist somewhere forever. I mean, God gave us life, and He does not lie. So we have life from God. And what kind of life does God have? He has eternal life. So what kind of life did God give that first man? He gave him eternal life. So you and I could logically deduce that the life God gave us is eternal just like His, yet we observe everyone is dying. So why is God's eternal life expiring on everyone? Well, because technically that eternal life was given only to the first man and only if He met the righteous requirement of manifesting perfect righteousness all the time, which He was able to do by that one decision at the tree. But after the fall, Him and his wife, they had to pass on that life to us. And they had to do that after the curse. So the life we got from Adam isn't like the eternal life that he got from God. We don't have that opportunity to just believe once at the tree. The life we got is cursed. And the the living part that we share with the creation, because we're from the dust of the ground, that, that part we share, our physical bodies, They're going to die. So not only is nobody perfect, but everybody's going to die, at least physically. But that soul God gave Adam, that soul could never die. And that life we got from Adam, even though cursed with physical death, can never simply not exist. You know you have a soul. And your soul will exist forever. And if you can't dwell with God, and your physical body dies, well, your soul has nowhere to dwell. And so it must dwell somewhere apart from God. And God calls that place hell. And God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Our story tells us that God will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. He wants that even for the really bad people and even for you and me. But still, we're all dying so what's a creator to do what's an eternally righteous self-aware intelligent personal creative loving being who has seen his good creation go bad what's he to do once he realizes that all the people that he'd hoped to live with together in heaven forever are now all as good as dead what would you expect him to do well all analogies fail and this is where Occam's razor fails. You or I, or Occam, we might expect him to cut his losses and just move on to the next, next project. But our Creator, He never broke with true love. He never violated that rule or any rule. And so true love dictates that He would do anything to save them, even if that meant risking His own life. And according to the story, he decided to do just that. He said to his newfound adversary who had deceived the woman and brought sin, he said, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. Her seed shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God determined that he would defeat the adversary. And in doing so, he would make a way to fulfill his initial objective. And you remember that initial objective, right? Where we started, sometime before God created the world, He decided to have people living with Him without blame and in love forever. And now this is where we discover who it was God was talking to at the beginning when He said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And we'll find out who it is that manifests righteousness continuously along with God and by whom God could know he was righteous. That is God's Son. And He sent His Son to save us. His Son's name is Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of other details I've left out for the sake of time. But here are the basics of it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? The devil was malevolent and evil in his deception of the woman. But God is willing, in our case, to simply say we've fallen short. The wages of sin is death. So the separation required because of sin, it's it's a sad and unavoidable reality. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life. So the Son of God says He'll save us, but how? How? Do we need to be better people? Do we need to clean up our act? Maybe we need to stop sinning. Is that it? Or maybe we need to go to church or get baptized. Or maybe we need to give some money to the temple priest or take a vow. Should we take a vow and then keep our vow? Well, according to our story, God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The Son of God came and He lived among us. He never sinned. Not like Hitler, not even like you and me. But the powers that be in the world hated him because their deeds were evil. So they put him on trial and they had him executed. And so he died, but he rose again. And for that, God has given him authority to determine who will be saved from death. And he says, all you have to do is believe and he'll justify you by your faith. And then... Our story tells us having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we conclude the story where it began. God brought it all back again to one simple rule believe. Do you believe? will you believe because that's all it takes one time is to just believe it in your heart when it says to to speak to say it with your lips that means your inner man says it in your heart and you believe it will you believe that's all you have to do is believe jesus christ loved us enough to come and die for us while we were yet his enemies or while we weren't even thinking about him while we had basically chosen not to even look into what he did, he still died for us. He died for you. And if you'll believe, you'll be saved. And so this is what I am convinced is the way to heaven and to eternal life. And so I wanted to tell you and ask you to believe. So if you want to discuss this story, if you have any questions about my logic, if you want to challenge my logic, if you want to Challenge any part of this or discuss this further. I'm happy. Send me comments. Uh, send me a, a message in the comments on the YouTube or the Rumble channel. I'd be happy to discuss it further with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to hear me out. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the story that you've told because you could have given us a list of rules and told us here's what you have to do, but instead you, you wrote a story about love and about forgiveness, and about a father and a son who created, and a a son who was willing to do anything to save his children when he saw that they were in danger and dying. And that's just the most logical explanation for everything that's ever happened, Lord, and we're thankful that you wrote it in a story that we could comprehend, and that we could tell other people. And thank you for this opportunity to tell other people, Lord, we just hope that, uh, that they'll respond and that some will believe. And we love you and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.